Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of The Greatest Machine. Man, Matt Higgins, what a freaking badass. Uh, this guy has just done it all. I mean, from, you know, working in the city of New York City and just taking charge during 9-11 to building an amazing private equity to becoming a former shark on Shark Tank. Uh, this guy really is just a freaking badass. We go deep on his book, Burn the Boats. Uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. I loved interviewing Matt. Stay tuned. Enjoy the episode. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Marchazzi, and boy, do we have a special guest. My man, Matt Higgins, is in the house. Matt, what's up, my friend? I love how fast you talk, by the way. We're going to talk this fast the whole time, because oh. that's more of my speed. <laughs> Anyone that <laughs> listens to this podcast on 1.2 speed is screwed. That's all I got to say. Oh, I love that, by the way. I can really, this is who I really am. This is how I normally talk. I have to always control myself for interviews, and so I won't. Let's get after it, man. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so pumped to have you on the show. I've been I've been seeing you all over the place with your new book, Burn the Boats. And here we are today on The Greatest Machine, getting after it. Oh, I'm so happy. Thank you for coming, my friend. Thanks for having me. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. So do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we're going to jump right into it? Please. All right. So for audience, those of you that are new to the show, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those are creating greatness in the world. And my man, Matt here is neither short of passion nor greatness. And I'm just going to say this. So I've been, I've been seeing the book was coming out. I did a little bit of research and I just pushed over to my team. I'm like, I want this guy on the show. I want to talk about the book. I hadn't even, by the way, I hadn't even read your book at this point. Okay. I had not even read it. I just said, this looks super interesting. My team reaches out, you book the show. I buy the book right away, and and we were talking about this pre-show, but I'm going to tell the audience right now, you need to buy the book, Burn the Boats. I Everyone knows, I talk about how much I love reading. It's like my secret superpower, and I devoured Matt's book in like two days. The only other book that I've devoured that quickly was Can't Hurt Me, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, and it was, right. it, it was like, it resonated. I was like, man, every entrepreneur needs to read this book. So I just want to start off the show. Normally I end the show with people's work. I'm going to start off this show with a huge thank you to Matt Higgins for writing the book, Burn the Boats, because I think you're going to change the world with this thing, man. And I am so pumped to have you here to talk all about your book today. Thank you, by the way. Can we interrupt that with a thank you? Because I've been killing myself for it, killed myself to make it. 
and it's the most important thing I've actually done in my life. So to hear you say that sustains me through another day of fatigue. So thank you. You're very welcome. And it's well-deserved. I've been watching you all over the place, promoting the heck out of this thing. It, I'm happy you're doing that work because I, I having did, done a book launch, I launched my book three years ago. I did, I spent 1500 hours on my book launch. I don't think most people respect the amount of work that goes into a book launch. And I've been watching you. I'm like, dude, this guy is hustling. So Good work there. Um, By the way, real quick, isn't it strange how somebody can work for like two years on a book and then they put in like a modicum of effort and then they quit? It's like, so you did it for ego or the credential? Like seems like a big old waste of time. So like for me, I should put in an exponential amount of work to tell the story of the book that I didn't write the book, right? Which means I have another four years left. Yeah, my, I, have a, I have a good friend, uh, Hal Elrod, that wrote the book, Miracle Morning. And he said, you know, like a book launch is a five-year process. So it's uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, it, it takes time for books to get out there. And there's so many books, but your book is amazing. I, I don't want to cheat the audience because there's so much I want to talk about before we get to the book. Do you mind if I give a real quick and dirty on your official bio? And then we're jumping right into it, my man. I'm here. All right, we're doing it. So uh, those of you that are not familiar with Matt Higgins, you either A, are living under a rock, or B, need to open your eyes because this this guy's out there doing some amazingness. First of all, uh, Matt is the CEO and co-founder at RSE Ventures with Stephen Ross. And for those of you that don't know, they're making investments in things like David Ching's Momofuku, which I love, Milk Bar, VaynerMedia. I mean, the list is obnoxious, but a bunch of amazing companies. He was the youngest press secretary in the history of New York City, guest shark on Shark Tank, runner of marathons. He worked for the New York Jets, Miami Dolphins, executive fellow at the Harvard Business School, and author of Burn the Boats. Just come, came out through HarperCollins and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, we're going to be getting into it, so I'm going to leave it be. But man, you are one accomplished dude. It is super cool to get to hang out with someone that is sucking the juices out of life. And you are definitely not afraid to do that, man. Thank you for coming Thanks. on here. This is so cool. Oh, thanks for having me. I love that 22-second bio. That's you know, exactly what I want. I try to make it happen quick. So I here at the, the Greatness Machine, we're all about origin stories. I like – I think it's – I'll tell you why I like origin stories. I, and I don't think I've talked about this with, with our audience before. The reason I like them is I think most people – they meet someone or hear you talk about all the cool things you've done. And they're like, Oh, I could never do that. Or they'll hear me talk about the things I've done. They're like, Oh, Darius is, you know, he's got a leg up. And the reality is, is I think the context just shows that anyone can really achieve awesome things in their life if they're not afraid to put themselves out there. And so I love origin stories. The reason I ask people on this show is I, is I'm interested to learn how do people do amazing things? Because I think that if everyone wasn't afraid to do it, this world would exponentially be better. And my goal is for more people to learn it so that they go do it. And that's really why I want, I, I love the origin story part of our show. With that said, not to, you know, put, put you under too much pressure, but yeah, I'd love to hear like, you know, kind of give us some of your backstory because your backstory is super awesome and interesting as the book says. Uh, but yeah, give us some of the backstory. I'd love to educate the audience of, you know, your humble beginnings and where you've come from. Great. No, thank you. And I, and I feel the same way about origin stories. In fact, it's, a big part of the mo- what you just said is a big motivation for how I wrote the book, how I engineered the book. I always use the word engineer because I'm trying to engineer an outcome as a catalyst. But I feel like people assimilate through storytelling and through modeling, not through lecturing and not through you know dissertations. And so I think a lot of business books are written like reference books because frankly it's easier. And so I tried to do a business book that was really about storytelling. So. And it all begins with my origin story. And for me, it's, it is important to share it because I don't want to show up in the world as like 
presumed wealthy, you know, middle-aged white guy who teaches at Harvard Business School, presumably born in Westport, Connecticut or something, right? Like, that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. So I like to rewind to the beginning. But uh, I grew up in Queens, New York, uh, was a product of um, a single mother. And uh, my, you know, earliest childhood memories are of my mother being, you know, very heavy, really trying to, you know, scratch her way out of poverty was working um, for senior citizens, cleaning their homes, would bring me, you know, to their apartments. And I would, you know, read, you know, Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom books and, and just, you know, watch my mom try to make something of her life. You know, she got divorced from my dad around nine years old. So we were, we were desperately poor. Uh, and I was, I talk about this publicly before, but, you know, we use these abject poverty words and they lose their resonance. And so, you know, to contextualize eating government cheese, taking a bus an hour away to a church pantry to get boxes of food so that, you know, I used to always be like, mom, there's no churches around here. You know, it's like we would, you know, we were always hiding everything and the house was honestly filthy and it was just a mess. Right. And so early on, uh, and these are, I guess, the first hints of defiance, it was sort of understood that my brothers and I would hustle to cover up poverty. You know, there was like an, an inherent shame and also, re, you know, rebellion via work. So for me, it was selling flowers on street corners. It, for my brothers, it was for uh, for ticket scalping, you know, selling handbags at a flea market on the thing for five bucks, like every kind of job working at McDonald's. Um, and so work was an important part of my life. Watching my mother try to make something of herself by going to college with a GD. She had gotten a GD at a community college and was able to enroll in college, and I'll explain to why that's important. But then also dealing with a parent, frankly, who was parentifying you. You know, anyone out there who has been a caregiver knows what I'm talking about. How you know sometimes you find yourself um, in a role you didn't want, which was me as a kid was taking care of my mother, and I was groomed honestly to be the hero child. And so you know, part of me was wanting to fulfill that obligation, rescue my mom, and part of me hated it. And all I wanted was for the cavalry to come first, for a man to come, then maybe for the government to come. You know, we were, my earliest memories were always at ER. I was taught to, you know, pretend you have a stiff neck so they would think it's meningitis. We can get in faster. Oh my she would do the same. I mean, all these hacks, right? And it was just very desperate. And so the most important thing that happened my entire life, the most important decision, which frames the book, was... Uh, out of that desperation and frustration and eventually capitulation that no one's coming um, came an insight, which was, why don't I do what my mother did and drop out of high school and get my GED on purpose? Why did that matter? Is because I was making three seventy five at McDonald's scraping gum under tables and I was working at a deli on Queens Boulevard making five bucks. And I was like, we, we are going to succumb long before I ever get out of here. And not only that, how am I going to go to high school? Like I'm working overnight at a deli. Who cares about school? And when I, when I saw what my mother did, it was like, wait a second. If Why don't I get a GED and go to college early on purpose? Well, I don't, it doesn't have to be the byproduct of a screwed up life. And I remember so excited. Here's a cool part about my mom. My mom, you know, loved me. And I was the, you know, the sweet boy. And, and, uh, and she was 100% supportive of this madness. But then I go to high school and I get picked up by the truant cops and see my guidance counselor. And I would be like, no, no, you don't understand. I have a plan. I have a really great idea. And I tell them, you know, and they're like, one, you're going to be a loser, young man. You're going to throw your life. Well, you know what I'm saying? The typical speech. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much at that point. It would frustrate me so much. Like, this is so obvious. What do I need algebra for? What do I need juxtaposed against my mother dying in the room next door? 
And, and I, and this is not hindsight bias. This is truly how I looked at it. There were so many attempts at intervening that were chipping away at my resolve that I was like, what can I do to counterbalance this? And I was like, I need to be a write-off. I need to be an absolute write-off that the system wants to get me out of this place rather than try to keep me in it. And so I decided very young age, I was going to fail every single class, which was a hard pivot for me to make because I was always perceived as quote unquote, a gifted kid, you know, lots of things were special about me, so to speak. And, and then here I come like, I'm going to be a radical failure. And I would sit in the back of the room with the kids with beepers on and just like all the ice called the land of misfit toys. And so Mrs. Vega, I still remember sweetheart. I would go in the room like, hi, Mrs. Vega, I'm going to go to sleep in the back. Like, okay. You know, like, like, I would go to bed, you know, watch the Gulf War on CNN for a bit. Anyway. And then after a period of time, it worked. People just wrote me off and then I had to execute. And so um, that was the beginning of my burn the boats move, actually self-sabotaging. I didn't use that language back then, obviously, but it was the, you know, it was basically the the philosophy. So how did it end up? And I tell the story in the book, but you know, last day of school, of course, I doubt everything. I have to go through with it. Everyone's mocking me, sitting on the steps of Cardoza High School, smoking a cigarette, thinking like, am I really going to go through with this? Like, this is probably, this is probably end up going to work out terribly. But the bottom line is I took my GD. I started college when I was 16 years old. I went to my high school prom. It's an old movie called Goodwill, Goodwill Hunting. And there's a great line because how do you like them apples? I came and saw my guidance counselor, Miss Vega, everybody. And that look of, of pity and a degree of contempt uh, had transformed into begrudging admiration because now I was president of the debate team. Ms. Vega was my classmate at my college getting her master's degree. And so we can get into it a little bit, but like, that's my origin story. You know, basically taking matters into my own hands, realizing there's no cavalry coming, but most importantly, we can get into it. I compounded my professional success so much more exponentially because I started two years earlier. And then, um, up as the press secretary of the mayor of New York a decade later. I love that, man. And so I want to, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that time in your life. Cause so first of all, in the book, uh, you had a teacher, Mr. Rosenthal, who was kind of talking trash to you. And I, I wrote mic drop moment in the book, like tell, do you mind telling that story? Cause I think yeah, it's a great I'll tell story. The story. Now, Mr. Rosenthal, wherever you are, I always redeem you because you were correct in what I'm about to say, but I'll tell the story. So in high school, there's the equivalent of the academic walk of shame, and you have to return your textbooks. I don't know why I conformed to this rule, but everything else, I was like, I get picked up by the truant cops all the time, you know, literally fail everything but typing. That's no bullshit. I can type 100 words a minute, probably more now. I, th- I will beat anyone listening to this right now in typing, because it was the one skill I was like, I think this is useful. And I heard Mr. Barker like, you failed every class, 55s, but typing, you know. Uh, but anyway, so the last day of class, I go to return my book. I walk into Mr. Rosenthal's room. He doesn't even look away. He goes, what's this? And I said, it's my textbook. Today's my last day, Mr. Rosenthal. He's a bald head, big, burly guy. And he looks straight at the head in the class. He goes, Higgins, what a waste. And then I'll see you at McDonald's. And now, of course, the class is like cracking up. And I'm like, it's like, a, like uh, even saying it now, I just got chills. It almost makes me pass out. Cause I weirdly just had a flashback remembering like, uh, like this is insane. Like, what am I doing? And also at the same time, Mr. Rosenthal, the kids don't know, like I know how it's going to end in my house. Right. I mean, like we're living in, it's just total catastrophe. Right. So everyone's cracking up. I start walking towards the door and something in my mind was like, bullshit. I'm not going to let this be the last thing I hear in high school. Hand on the door. I turn around. I was like, you know what, Mr. Rosenthal, if you see me at McDonald's, it's because I own it. And all the class like, oh, snap, Mr. Rosenthal, take that. And I, and I walk out. But 
the reality, and I tell this in a story too, because you know I hate the airbrushing, right? Like one, he was right from his context; he didn't sure. have all the information. Looked like a kid throwing his life away, and he's tough love, right? If you knew what I was living in, he would be like, "Oh man, I'm sorry." But number two, I sat on the steps of school and I was like, "All right, now I got to execute." And you know what? You remember high school when everybody would gather at the end of school, and there was that energy, maybe nervous energy, because there were the tough kids, and then you're hanging out with your crew. Then there's the girl you liked, right? Imagine sitting on the school and you're allowed to sit there. It's like. 12 30 in the afternoon i remember that or whatever one it was in between lunch and the end of the day and i'm alone and it's like the thing you crave the whole time freedom you're now like oh, i can't believe like i'm smoking on the steps because i can do whatever the hell i want now right and like the guards like see you higgins wow you know and i had to pick myself up but that's one of those moments i was like all right don't choose pity you know what I mean? Like pick yourself up. And the funny part of it, they transfer you to this program called the auxiliary services for high school students or some like euphemism. Basically you won't show up as a dropout on our role. <laughs> you know, mm. it was like a cross. I go to one, I go to one, one, uh, one, one class. And I was like, Oh, this is real. Like there were people in that room that had made terrible choices. And it was like the land of last resort, you know? And I was like, I'm, I can't do this. This is going to chip away at my self-esteem. And I remember I went, I took my GD on standby at Springfield gardens high school. I found another rule. I was like, Oh, you mean I don't have to actually study for the test. I can just show up. And I showed up the end of that week or whatever the next week and took my GD on standby. Now, most people never use the word crush GD in the same sentence, but I was like, <laughs> I'm going to crush this silly little test. <laughs> By the way, hanging on my wall, proudest proudest heirloom is that GD right next to my law degree, which ranks much lower in I pride. And uh, and I and I crushed the GD and went I, to college. I love it. So so this idea of burn the boats starts starts kind of there. And I, and um, I had heard, first heard this term fairly recently, like probably a couple of years ago. For for listeners that don't know what burn the boats means, can you explain what it means? Because because in the book you talk, you say, look, I, I, that was the first big boat I burned. Is I burned this op, you know this this I, I went and I burned the boat on me st- being able to stay in high school to then move on to this experience of get, going into college early. Explain what burn the boats means and the kind of your thoughts around it. Because I think people that know what it means may actually think of it differently than you talk about it in the book. And those that don't, I'd love to educate them. Yeah, it's interesting. If the book actually fails to resonate, it'll probably be because I was too clever for my own good, which is funny because I am appropriating a term that was appropriated from somebody else. And mm. so let me unpack let me give you a little history lesson. Thank you. Uh, my children, uh, a little Mr. Rogers. But <laughs> so uh, this phrase has come up to me at different points in my life and, I, and, I'll, and I'll skip that and come back to it later, but burn the boats, right? So it's attributed to uh, Hernan Cortez, right? Very bad man, do not emulate, a conquistador who invaded Mexico and, and conquered the Aztecs in 1519 and his troops were demoralized. And so as the fable goes, you know, he burned 10 of his 11 boats. So they knew they had no way home and they fought to the death and they and they prevailed. And so what's interesting is like the term has a slightly negative connotation because Cortez did it. When somebody heard that this was the title of my book, I'm like, oh, that's politically incorrect. I'm like, he was culturally appropriating it. So let's rewind. This strategy actually uh, shows up in history in 711 AD when a general by the name of Tariq uh, invades the Iberian Peninsula and burns his boats and conquers the Spaniards. Now Cortez was Spanish, right? So he probably learned about a little. So now where did he get it from? All right, well, rewind. In China, in 206 BC, there's a general who is pissed off at his commander being lazy and on the 46th day, kills him, takes control of the troops, 
burns the boats, crosses the Yellow River and wins. And the Chinese invent a word, there is a word called burn the boats in Chinese, right? And then rewind where they get that Sun Tzu art of war in 500 BC says you burn the boats and destroy your cooking pots so you have no hankering after home. The long and the short, and this hasn't really been done in any academic way, which I'd love to do. Yeah, It's the OG life hack going back to the beginning of time that military strategists, when they're outnumbered 100 to 1, every culture has a fable of overcoming impossible odds. And I got to thinking, like, why is it that military strategists know something intuitively about what makes us operate at our best that we reject, which is humans perform better when they have no safety net. Humans perform better when they have no backup plan. Now, this has always resonated to me because I have a phrase where I say problems beget solutions. I'm always putting myself in a problem and I'm lowering the bar to, to not have to identify the solution. So I harness the full measure of my will and trust that I'll just figure it out. So I started thinking over time, like, hey, I've been following this formula. Maybe it doesn't apply in peacetime. What does academia say? And there's an epic study in 2014 out of Wharton that wanted to identify what is the impact of having a, bla- a backup plan, a fallback plan. Can we measure it? And they had a two groups of students. And, you know, obviously the students didn't know the object of the exercise. But like, by the way, group number one, if you want to think of another way to get the snack, whatever it was, just, you know, you can think about it. Like, don't have to do anything, but just think about it. You know, everybody good? You're going to think about it? Okay, good. What they found is two two interesting things. One, the group that was allowed to just think about a backup plan but do nothing about it, measurably, statistically, materially, was much less likely to achieve planning. Mm. And two, they measured intrinsic motivation, and that group was significantly less motivated to even win or to even try. Wow. And so what? What? Uh, why, why you're, which I love what you said, why you're saying I'm using it differently is because the word burn the boats has been used, connotes like a bombastic attitude, jingoistic, screw everyone, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I've done the completely the opposite. I wrote this book for the risk adverse, for the angst ridden, you know, for the people who struggle with how to fully commit. And the boat on my cover is actually, I'll show it to you, is actually this little boat is a reconstructed paper boat built from scratch, actually, as a, as a graphic, 410 iterations of this cover. And the reason it's a paper boat, because the boat is a metaphor for all the things in our life we have to burn in order to fully commit. And many of those things stem from childhood. For me, it was the shame of dropping out, never having a friend come over my house till I was 26 and my mother died, the inability to save her. I was carrying all these legacy issues. But for others, it might be anxiety. Oftentimes it's dad issues, right? Like Mm. I'm living my dad's life, not my own, because he never hugged me or wouldn't give me approval. Whatever it is, I want to write a book appropriating from Cortez who appropriated from everyone else, the idea of a boat and really demonstrate what does full commitment look like, how to be honest and pull back the curtain on what it looks like to audit oneself so we can identify those things to hold that hold people back and to prove to the reader and prove to you listening right now that what you've been told is prudent and safe is actually preventing you from getting everything you want, but not in a silly little Instagram post where it's not actionable, but in 288 pages of deconstruction. Yeah, it, it was it was really loud and clear because I, I I remember like my first thought was like, oh, you know, like it's kind of hard to like like this idea of burn the boats and go all in and 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 cut out all your like contingency plans. And you talk about this where you you say no, I'm not saying to 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 get like to take full blown risk. And if you if you fail, you're in destitute. You actually do a great job qualifying it, but this idea of of going back in time and making you know kind of making amends with these different parts of yourself, and everyone's got their own story, right? Like I, I'm a human being. Yeah. It's really funny, man. When 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 you go through your list of things, 
I worked at McDonald's. I do transcendental meditation. I've suffered with anxiety. I've had issues with my weight over, over my life. Like I, I was reading your stuff, man. And I'm like, man, I got a lot in common with Matt. Um, <laughs> you know, and you really do a great job talking about all these amazing things that you've worked through in your life. And that was what I left with it was that it's around, it's about showing up to be your best self. And, and for me, I just like, it, like I said, I read a lot of books and this just went straight where it was supposed to go. So I'd love for you well, to thank you. That's why I was saying if the book doesn't um, get to its place, you know, alongside hard things or atomic habits, wherever it's meant to go, it's because I was too clever, but I felt really convicted. I want to appropriate this idea because it's the, it's the risk adverse that need the help. You know, it's not Kevin O'Leary and the self-possessed, right? Sure. It's the rest of us. And so, you know, We'll see. It'll require word of mouth, people like you, from telling people the book is great in order for, for it to work. I've probably created a, a, a larger, heavier bar for myself to do it, but I'm, I was convinced if I could pull it off, I could reframe this concept for people. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. It stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply and Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, 
all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. And so, and so let, let's, let's talk about your story a little more because I feel like you have this really, and I always butcher this word, like circuitous, is that circuitous path? Like this, yeah, your, circuitous, yeah. yeah. Yeah, your path was was really non-conventional. Like for someone that's that's become a really, uh, you know, successful investor that's rubbed elbows with, you know, people that are really resonating at a high level, at least from a business standpoint and and, and entrepreneurially, like, like your background starts really in public service, but so I'd love for you to kind of talk about how, it, like, cause I think a lot of people, when they think of, especially younger folks, and I even think of myself, like everyone, you know, I was a person that was like, I need to make money. Right. I was in my early twenties um, and I was as motivated to make money as you possibly could be. And I said, screw passion, screw interest. I'm going, what's the quickest way for me to make money. And I think a lot of times people do that. And, and, and so I feel like, you know, yeah, obviously you got to make money. You got to pay the bills. But but what I've found in life is especially my most successful friends, and I have some friends that are really, really successful. And when you hear their paths, you're like, how the hell did that person go from A to B? And when you hear what A was and what B was and C and D, when they get to Z, you're like, oh my gosh, that's I would never have thought that. And I've seen this over and over and over again. And your story is literally like one of the best examples that I've seen. So what, how, like tell like kind of high level like your path and then why you think your path led you into this way where you're able to create such immense value in the world. Uh, yeah. And I, and I thank you for saying that, by the way. And I, I, I do think as much as what I really tried to do with the book is show, even though I was born in extraordinary circumstances, I don't think I am extraordinary. I think I'm operating pursuant to certain formulas that the crisis enabled me to hack into, frankly, right? These exigent circumstances of truly feeling so desperate and depressed and like literally my mother's life was on the line, enabled me to hack into things. So let's talk about the hopscotching, which if you look at my career, that's why I hate my bio because it just seems so incoherent and I'm tired of caring about narrative. I don't really give a shit if anybody can make sense of my, my career anymore. It just doesn't concern me, but it is incoherent. So if you look at the connective tissue, I realized very early on that, that, um, that everybody has a leverageable asset, even if you have no power, even if you believe you have nothing, you possess within you some type of leverageable asset and you have to identify it and then you have to use it as a bridge to get to where you want to go. So when I was, I was a kid, that leverageable asset was, was willing to do any job better than anyone else and to have no sense of dignity and no sense of entitlement. And so that started, and I talk about this in the book about working at McDonald's, literally scraping gum under the table. And I remember I would, you know, gamify it before that was a word where I would really do everything. And we, when they changed the labor laws back then, I was 13 years old. Um, the owner of the McDonald's, long enough that he won't get in trouble for saying this, he was so admiring of the work that he paid me off the books with a personal check. And that was my first like, oh, if I make myself indispensable, indispensable rather, at whatever job you'll give me, you'll give me another job, right? I'll get more responsibility. So from you know that moment forward, I was always looking for a le leverageable asset to move me along the continuum, all in an effort to get out of poverty and get some and, and get some autonomy. And so it went from McDonald's, and then early on, I realized you know I'm a pretty good you know writer. And I went, I met a congressman, I worked on his campaign delivering flyers, and I just hustled my way onto computers. Everybody was fired, and I I was I stayed. He happened to own a newspaper, and so they let me interview. I was a great writer, and I was willing to kill myself. So. I got a job working on a newspaper column. Well, I took that little newspaper column 
and uh, I would write investigative stories. So much so that they got the attention of some pretty important people, and I won some big awards. And then next thing you know, Carl Bernstein wrote a letter nominating my articles for a Pulitzer Prize. And I got featured in a newspaper. You know what I mean? Like there was always a leverageable asset that would sort of take me. But oftentimes the the leverageable asset was the willingness to do what others wouldn't Mm -hmm. and to come within an inch of my life. And honestly, we all revert to what we're comfortable in. When all else fails, like even with this book, I'm like, what's something that somebody wouldn't do? And I'm going to do that thing, even if it is very attenuated about how that might translate. So the other night I stayed up for two days straight um, just to, to do an interview on radio from 1 to 3 a.m. Because I was like, most people won't do that. <laughs> you know? So the connective, we can go through it, but I can draw a line between every job and a leverageable asset that got me to the next. And just to make it kind of really clear, with the mayor's office becoming press secretary, it was leveraging my ability to both communicate and work nonstop. The reason why politics draws young people, they're the only people crazy enough to put in these kinds of hours. And back then, you know, City Hall was seven days a week. And I talk about this in a book as well. I was pretty good at knowing my worth and I would always make deposits by being indispensable. And then as as is always the case, those who control labor are always delayed in acknowledging it because people will exploit you as long as you're willing. And I would draw a line. And when I didn't get what I want, I would quit. And so I quit the mayor's office working for Giuliani twice and then got brought back as press secretary. And we can get into it because obviously that was the, the best and worst you know day of my life. Yeah, that, 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 that's that's amazing. And and thank you for that, because I think that, that, that you really kind of said it well, this connective tissue of your willingness to basically what I just heard you say is I'm willing to fucking grind and work harder than anyone else to make it happen and then show value by creating value. And so, and that's the thing. Grind, by the way, and grind with, with intentional focus, grind on, on the area that's exceptional and then grind with the goal. And and where people make a mistake is they want to use their, their, whether they're indispensable, they want to use their leverage or, or, or justice to get, to get money. And mine was never to get money. It was always to get advancement and, 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 uh, and ratification of the work through the title. And I knew I could leverage the title to get money. So, so taking a step back and, and, and maybe, again, like kind of pressing the pause button and taking a look back at your whole life and me asking this question, because I'm a person where I felt always this desire to grow as a human, to achieve. Uh, some of this was probably around proving self-worth. Um, others was just, just an innate, like getting after it mentality. It's, it's innate. I, I couldn't help myself. Right. Were you always that way? Were you always a person that was like, I'm going to do big things. Like, tell me about that because especially coming from a family environment and being in poverty, you know, I mean, you saw your mom obviously do this from uh, the perspective of her going back to school, but it, but I, it, it, I guess t- I want to say this the right way. I don't believe that you had a bunch of role models that were doing all these amazing no. things like yourself. You, it sounds like it had to come from within. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the greatest asset that my mother gave me was this sort of belief I was special. And again, maybe it was a degree of, you know, grooming, right. To take on the, the hero child role, but not setting aside psychology for a second. Um, I did always have a very strong sense of justice and empathy. Everything would break my heart, but everything Wanted, I always wanted to get vengeance. And for me, that was of an obsession with politics when I was an early kid. But this may sound nutty, but my hobby when I was very young was to go to a library. I would take the bus and I, back then it was microfiche. And I would and I would um, I'd pull up c- catastrophes throughout history, oppression. I became obsessed with the Holocaust. And it, to this day continues, you know, as, with treatment of Jewish people. I'm like, 
just be like, how does this happen? And like, just in a way, and maybe it was because I felt so subjugated in my circumstance. But yeah, it's a good question. Like there were no role models. There was nothing to model it after. But I did have this sense of, I don't belong here. And I, it's not fair that I was born in this environment and it's somehow going to dictate. I had an epic conversation with my mother. I talk openly about this because I want people who are caregivers you know, we don't talk about the dynamic of being a caregiver when you're not supposed to be a caregiver. That happens later in life when kids become caregiver of their parents, but it happens earlier in life too when there's an alcoholic in the family or whatever distortion. So I like to talk publicly so somebody out there feels, you know, heard. But I would have these conversations with my mother. She was just, you know, so depressed and and succumbing slowly, you know, over the years and while fighting to get out of it. So it was this juxtaposition of you know, like standing in quicksand and, and uh, we would have these conversations and it was just language of victimization. And I remember having this time, I said, you know, I don't want to live this way anymore. Like I don't see the world the way you see it. I see the world as hackable and I don't see it. I said, so from now on, um, I will no longer see the world as things happen to me. I happen to things very grandiose for like a 15 year old. I don't remember how old I was, but somewhere in that range. And she was like, that's, that's nice for a little boy to say, but you don't understand what it means to be dying. She was always imagining herself dying. And I was like, we're all dying. And like, I, I don't think you have a monopoly on death, but I don't believe the world is hardwired for us to be a victim. And I, I choose to not be a victim. And it was probably a moment of dissociation from my environment from that yeah. point forward. Like I will transcend these circumstances, but I also want us to finish the job. I want to, I want to deliver salvation to her and escape poverty at the same time. So um, I, like I, that was the, the framing, but the long, long, short of way of saying, I do think something was born within me that gave me that sense of justice and empathy, but also made a conscious decision to retain it. I think a lot of people go through what I went through and people out here can relate. You kind of, you feel like you have to make a fundamental choice. Are you cho- going to choose to be bitter and deny others what you were denied? Or are you going to choose to see the value of not having had that in your life and be aware of just how impactful it could be to give it to another? I remember being a 16-year-old and saying, if somebody had just given a crap about this situation, there's no reason for my mother to die in a Western society. Like, she could have got her knees replaced and whatnot. And so I hold on to that thought is my point. That's the choice I made, to not be a victim, but also to never believe anyone else is destined to. Yeah, there's this quote that, you know, does life life happen to you or for you? And, and when I read the book, I kept... I like that one. That's great. What's that from? Um, you know, I read a book. I think it was Ed Milet's book, The Power of One More. And that's where I, I picked that up. I'm seeing Ed on, I'm seeing Ed on, uh, on uh, Wednesday, he, on uh, Wednesday in California. Oh, he writes did? that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great book. And and so when when I read that in his book, I thought, yeah, like, uh, what type of a human are you? You know, and, and, and I'll tell you, like, what I read from your book was that your life happens for you, human. And that's why it resonated for me so much. I was like, man, this person's really thinks of, I think that you really do think of things the right way and, and the results speak for themselves. So moving forward to um, Giuliani, press sec- secretary in 9-11. Let's talk a little bit about that because that, that was a pivotal point in your life. And it really, you know, it was obviously a really harsh thing for all of New York, but you were at the ground zero, no, you know, no pun intended. Love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I was, I was with him, you know, within, you know, an hour of the plane striking the towers, I was actually standing outside setting up a press conference. It's, a, it's where I learned a lot. I mean, it's unfortunate what happened to Giuliani. So I, I had broken with him a long time before that. Um, not broken with them. I remain grateful uh, and appreciative, but like I didn't sign an oath of fidelity sure. about his views. So, so, but, but I remember back then 
the right person at the right time. And the first rule of crisis management I learned from him was just to show up, right? So anytime there was a crisis, like the, the, uh, the object of the exercise, first priority was to get as close to the proximity of, of catastrophe and use imagery, uh, symbolism to demonstrate we're here, we're in charge, which makes total sense. Actually, when politicians get that wrong, I'm like, it's so obvious, right? And George Bush at the time actually didn't show up at the site until th- Thursday. And I put together, I helped put together the, uh, the visit with the White House staff, but those 48 hours were crucial. And so anyway, I was standing outside and thinking like, this is just, this is, I mean, it's crazy. Like everyone's running the other direction. I'm alone on a street corner with a couple of aides trying to reach the mayor. And then as I was trying to head back to city hall, the towers collapsed. Uh, and for a moment there, I thought, you know, we were all dead because I didn't know the tower collapsed. All I do is see this smoke coming down Broadway and an overtake us. And we're all on the ground gagging. Wow. And I meet up with the mayor later. I'll never forget this. People always ask to share your memories. And to be honest, I, I don't share a lot because it's inauthentic because I'm taking them from the TV or I'm taking them from what I read. Most of it is, is uh, blacked out. Uh, because I, I was there every day, the smells and the, the fire. I mean, you could imagine. So, but there's some things I do remember. And I remember meeting with the mayor at the firehouse that within a, an hour and the mayor's immediate team. On uh, First, I remember looking at the walls of a firehouse and all the equipment's gone. And then I always remember like, wow, those people had just died. So many of them, wow. you know, and then, but I didn't process that at the moment. All I just see is an empty firehouse, Right. But there's the fire commissioner, Tommy Von Essen. He's he's on the floor with his face in his hands and he's uh, sobbing. You know, and you see like a commissioner, right? Like, and he's just like, and in the room next door is a glass window and through the window is the mayor. And there's, they're around a phone, it's on speakerphone. And I hear, you know, we need air cover screaming, right? And like, and you know, it's coming. It's the vice president of the United States. And you hear the jets flying above board. So like all this imagery. And then two hours later, the first press conference where those who remember are students of history, there's a line the mayor delivers where someone says, well, do you have a sense of the casualties? And he says, it'll be more than any of us can bear. Wow. And then That's I remember right. that afternoon, I went with the mayor to visit um, to a hospital, St. Vincent's. And I remember a line of gurneys, all these doctors there and nurses with lines. And they're, they're like this, you know, and then we're waiting for the ambulances to come. And then we're there for an hour and the ambulances never come. Oh my gosh. And then we go down to the site. So a lot of that. But my job for those next 90 days was to build coalition for the war, the war against terror. And right. we erected a, fam- a platform underneath Ground Zero on Liberty Street looking at it. And we put up a board with every country that had lost somebody. Back then it was 91. It may have been revised since. And my job over the next 90 days was to bring every leader that we could of the free world who might be inclined to deny what happened or that we needed their air base, whatever to the site. So I bought Vladimir Putin signed it right next to me. It was something like we will get those bastards and, you know, the Emir of Qatar. And we would, so the way the setup was uh, we could do a whole podcast on this, but there was a, uh, there was a pier 52, I think it was in Manhattan or pier 51, you know, it was this three football long pier with segments one of them was the DNA lab. One of them was the every level of government in one place as a command center. And the back was for press conferences to show we were in charge. And in the back back was where we would take the boats with the with the machine guns from every country. And we would bring the, the, the prime ministers, presidents and emirs to the site. So 90 days. And then I decided I can't leave. I was like, I don't I don't want to leave yet. And so I moved to the site and became probably the first or second employee of a new federal agency in charge of rebuilding. So 
why, how this all ties together, I do think because of the trauma I was born into, my mother had just died. We didn't talk about that, but but a few months earlier, that it weirdly felt very peaceful to be in the middle of the, this crisis. It, it, and then I started realizing I have, I have some serious trauma I got to get used to. But it felt very much at ease. Like, this is where I belong. I belong in the fire, you know, and, and, and I'm very at ease here. I'd be lying if I said I was not at ease because it had been through so much that it felt um, like it was my purpose. Yeah. It's a, to your point, like right person at the right time. Right. And, and to be to, and you're young, you were at 26 when this happened. I was 26. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I had turned. Yeah. I was 26. I didn't turn 27 yet. And that happened like, like, so that, that happened I, again, you kind of talked about it before where you left and came back. Was this the first time you came back or the second? I'm sorry. I, I can't remember. No, it's okay. No, this was the second time I came back. Yeah. Like the first time I, I, came, I left and I wanted to be deputy press secretary. They're like, you're 12. And I was like, I don't care. I deserve it. I'm, I'm writing all those gets. I quit. Four months later, like, okay. <laughs> you uh, know? I'm back. And then Jeopardy Press here is, you know, and it is, and, uh, then I left again. They're like, you're never coming back. I was like, eh, I, I don't know. You'll bring me back. And then they brought me back again. So and that was, I mean, that was the, t- the tough day. I mean, I go into this in a book um, for everybody listening. I do still believe this, that we don't get to choose the timing of opportunities. It's obvious, but it's, it's worth saying because whenever I actually choose to defer an opportunity, it always evaporates. Always when I'm always trying to sequence, you know, things. So I wait, I'll wait, I'll do it later. And then it never works out. And so when I got the job offer to become press secretary, uh, I was in law school at night at Fordham Law. I mean, I went to school for 11 years at night while, while working and taking care of my mom, seven years of college, four years of Fordham. I was on law review. Like, um, and then I was press secretary, the mayor of New York, or at least that was the job. And they were like, don't worry, you'll coast. It's April. No big deal. The end of the administration. And meanwhile, my, my mom was in the room just deteriorating on an oxygen tank. House was a mess. You know, she couldn't even move. I had to, you know, take care of her and bathe her. We had no money. I'm living a complete lie. Not a single person to come over the house. And then um, I was supposed to start on April 2nd, yesterday, actually, as we're recording this. April 2nd, 2001, um, and uh, I be- and I didn't sleep at all because I would always listen. And a lot of times we'd go to the emergency room and I would sleep with a towel around my head so I could hear through the fibers, try to get like muffled sleep. But, you know, years and years of lack of sleep. I get up in the morning, go to the work, and she pleaded with me not to go to work that day. and just said, you know, uh, like, I don't feel good. And I was like, you never fucking feel good. I have to go to work with no money. And I, I talk about this in a book. And just the choices we make. And I was like, I got to go. And then she had called me um, a couple hours later. Uh, and I was actually excited because she said, I called an ambulance. We didn't, we had never gotten to that level. Mm. And I was like, oh, ambulance, that means she has to be admitted. Maybe I can get a break. And, and somebody was like, hey, do you want to, you want somebody to take you, you know, a cop car? And I was like, nah, it never, it's fine. It never ends well. I mean, never, never, nothing ever happens. Nothing ever did happen. Always. And then by the time I got there, she had uh, died a few minutes before that. And and, and how so, old were you? This did you were 26 when this, this happened? Is, this is 26, yeah. So this is, you know. And actually, the mayor did something amazing. I talk about this. He he uh, he asked me, what can I do? And and uh, he actually helped arrange a, 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 her casket to take in around the college. Yeah. Because uh, that was the only place that she ever felt, you know, dignity. So I don't know. What's the point of that story? I always say, one, there's no happy endings guaranteed. Like, like it, it was so hard. The horrifying part. It's not about losing a parent as much as watching somebody's life degrade with so much promise and potential. And it was like, what do you mean there's no happy ending? Like, 
like literally just disappeared from the face of the earth, born into pain and die in pain. You know, all this effort for nothing. No one cared. Discarded by society. Like can't even bathe. Can't even get anybody to cut her hair. And she's dead. And I know that sounds so harsh when I say this to everybody listening, but like I'm, I've been acutely aware of that my entire life. Like that is how it ends absent human intervention or taking custody of yourself. One of those two things happen to have to happen or things end really, you know, terribly. Um, so, you know, that, so you can imagine a few months later, 9-11 happens and I'm still in the fog of my own war. Yeah, man. So funny. So my, my father passed away when I was 22 and it was in 2000, sorry. August of 2000. Yeah. It, and, but it was the same thing. Like kind of, you know, there's overlap. My dad was pretty like, had, he, he, you know, did not, was not a happy guy at the end. And to see that, and it's interesting to see that, how does that shape the kids to then go out there? And I always tell people for me, and I see this in, in your story, it, it's made me be more, I guess, aware about how engaged I want to live my life to go and create the things I want to create. And that's, that's the gift in the tragedy, right? At least for myself. Yeah, for me, for me, it makes me like, when I meet a single, I do these scholarships for single moms. Like I, I, I can see so clearly and feel so acutely what it would be like, you know, like, and when I see somebody striving and aspiring at the same time, surviving and aspiring at the same time, I'm like, damn, that's really hard. Yeah. It's hard enough to survive, but to muster excess energy and capacity to aspire is nearly impossible and very few do it. So thankfully, I'm sure you feel the same way. I, I see so many, I, I see the majority of people who go through these circumstances do feel, either one feel bad for themselves you know, feel like a victim or feel bitter and resentful. Like no one did that for me. And I just never had any of that, I guess, because I decided I happened to things. It's like, not even like, there was no question in the end I would win. So why would I, why would I be resentful? You know what I mean? And like, there was no expectation anyone would do anything. So why would I be bitter that they didn't, you know, and that's kind of how I, so I'm so grateful because that attitude totally affected the course of my life. That's such a burn the boat attitude, my friend. Not to steal your your book, but yeah, you that's the burn the boat, right? Like you're just like yeah. you're gonna get after it. Um, so you know, I want to kind of you know, gosh, I should have booked a longer show with you. Um, <laughs> We're so gonna do much. a couple of these. Well, you should do more of them. Part yeah, one and part two. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm down, but but I know you're busy, and I don't want to. I don't no, want right. I, I don't want to ask if it's if it's not going to happen. Um, yeah, you know, like you you took that opportunity, right? Again, for for listeners, if let's put the math together here. High school dropout, seven years, then four years, eleven years of school, night school, mayor's office. There was you threw in a startup in, in there in between, back to the mayor's office, really quarterbacking the press around nine eleven, and then that segues into you getting into the NFL and working with the NFL. You talk a little bit about that because that ends up being the springboard into what you're doing right now and all this uh, tons of amazing things. I'd love yeah, to hear and about again, that. To stay, no, thank you. So to stay on the like the leverageable asset, right? Like I go, and this also applies to promotion as it applies to jobs, right? So in terms of you know job, like I I went, uh, you know I I was a consensus candidate between the mayor and the governor, who generally don't get along in in, in New York and in particular in that back then, but but I was well regarded. And well suited, and so I was I was put in charge of press for the rebuilding of the trade center site. But again, leverageable asset. I was really helping drive policy. I was at the center of everything, and I was like, you know, if I don't pivot from being the press guy, I'm going to be relegated to that forever. And I don't say that derisively. It's just not the choice I wanted to make. And so I had a moment of leverage, and I used that leverage for the title, and I became chief operating officer of the rebuilding, right? Which pretty extraordinary title. 
And so after doing two years, I was like, this is not healthy. I need a break. I need to go. I need to move on. I wasn't meant to be a government employee my entire life. And so the New York Jets at the time needed to build their own stadium, uh, finally have their own home, and they needed somebody to run the campaign. So I always believe in this too. You want to zoom out and broadly define who you are as, as, as much as possible, right? If that's your desire, because otherwise you're putting yourself in a box and people put themselves in a box all the time, right? So I easily could have been like, well, I'm a press guy fundamentally, or I'm a government guy. But I was like, no, no, I'm somebody who could under- oversee the most complicated projects on earth and and drive them. So what's one of the most complicated projects? Building a stadium in the middle of a city. And so I was able to get that job at the team and leverage that work to eventually uh, be promoted multiple times to oversee the business of the team. And that's where, you know, I did that over an eight year period. So people are like, how'd you go from government to, you know, now when I tell you that, it's very clear. So again, leverageable assets. When the time came, I was like, you know, if I don't move on from this job, I'm going to end up like working in a mature organization my whole life. It's not my destiny. Now, my destiny is to architect, to build, to engineer a degree of chaos. I've tried to move away from that part. But like, I like, you know, building and creating from scratch. And so I ultimately ended up partnering up with Stephen Ross, who had a need which is to oversee the team. At the time, the Dolphins were, you know, games were being threatened to blackout, team was losing tons of money, needed somebody to oversee the business, and I wanted to build. And we sort of shook shook hands. I'll oversee it, turn it around. I served as vice chair, but I don't want to do that day to day. What I want to do is build, and he's a builder. And so we set out to put together this crazy portfolio. And version 1.0 was backing people from scratch. Gary Vaynerchuk, I'd given him four Jets tickets. I went back and acquired, you know, 40% of the firm with, with Steve. And and then, you know, long litany of just helping build these uh, consumer brands. But when I tell it like this, if I have 20 minutes, I get everyone be like, oh, I get how you went from McDonald's to, <laughs> to Shark Tank, right? And like, right. And, and there are little micro stories all along the way. Oh, I got on Shark Tank. Well, how about I try to create my own show? I create my own show. I'm like, well, how about we create a production studio based upon my experience, my own show? Some people hear this and they feel like it's exhausting. So I apologize to everybody. But you do, if you read the book, you have to accept the premise, I think, that the joy of living truly isn't striving and trying to touch the ceiling of our potential. And that's how I've lived my life. Yeah, no, the, the, it, 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 it comes through so, in so many different ways. And, and it's funny when you, were, when you were talking earlier, you said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you used, I don't want to misquote you, but you said something like, I'm, you know, I'm tired of having to, you know, how to like explain my story. And, yeah. and I think the most important part, and this is because I think people are, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to talk shit on humans. They're basic and they need linear, you know, they need the, the, the lines to be linear. Um, right, they need packaging. I actually think that, and I, and I, you know, the, the people buy clarity, right? And so I, I think that when I see your story, I, I, I go meta and I go, no, your story tells the more important story, which is life is not linear, and that the striving is what matters because that's what creates the out, outcomes. To your point, and that if you can get your out outside of this paradigm of oh, it needs to be linear, and there needs to be we're going to, we, we have this this arc of achievement that goes from A to B. I'm going to go to Harvard, then I'm going to go to McKinsey, and then I'm going to go to Goldman, and then I'm going to go to blah blah blah, and then sooner or later I'm going to be the chairman of Pepsi, and and you know like like those are the linear stories I think that made more sense 50 years ago. I don't think yeah. we I, and not to say that there's a place for that. I just think that there's way more wiggle room to create now that didn't exist before. And your story is just, you were just early, you know, you're just like a first mover as far as I'm concerned. Gary is a first mover, you know, yeah. his story's like that. Right. And so I feel like we're the first class of entrepreneurs where you could create without having that quote unquote pedigree. And then, you know, ironically enough, you're teaching at Harvard, 
you know, which wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. There's no way, right? It's because we live in a new world where entrepreneurs can do these things and where creators can do these things. So kudos to you. Um, I want to Thanks. touch on one something you said in the book, Matt. You're welcome, by the way. But but there's something you said in the book, and we got six minutes left. And God, I want to talk about Shark Tank. Do you really? Were you really willing to come back and do more? Because I, I want to talk to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, we could do it to part two. Why not? Okay, like, this is so fun. We like, of course, awesome. You know, I, I, we don't have to rush it. We can, as long as you have more to more to ask. I have more oh to man, dude, I, I'm I feel like I'm rushing a little bit already because I, I knew this because your book you crammed so much knowledge into the book. I was like. There's no way we're going to do an hour. You and I, like, I just have too many questions. Um, but there's, I want to touch on this quote because this quote, I, you know, I always take notes when, it, when it, especially when I love a book. But you said, the faster you secure, secure accomplishments, the more time you have to leverage these, these future opportunities. Explain what that means. Because I think that, that, that I was like, oh, this is money. And people need to know what this means. Talk about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with this idea. Out of all the ideas in a book, this one, you know, again, somewhat obvious, but not talked about. I mean, what is talked about is Warren Buffett's principles around compounding and, 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 you know, compounding interest as being the most important principle in finance, but he's right, but it compounding and some have done this, but compounding isn't discussed enough vis-a-vis your own career and compounding is the reason why you should be urgent and what you do. So if you look at just my life as a case study by dropping out of high school at 16, like that one decision pulled forward my credentials that because I was a college student, I was able to get college student jobs, including that job at a newspaper when I was like 12, you know, like, like that extra bit of time, it may not sound like a lot of time, but from a percentage basis, in terms of my life at that point, it was a huge percentage of pulling forward my career, right, and enabled me to constantly stay one step ahead, pull it forward, pull it forward. So when people say, how'd you oversee two NFL teams by 40? How did you, you know, get the Ellis Island Medal of Freedom, you know, when you're 35, whatever I was like, how'd you get on Shark Tank when you're 41, whatever the age is, right? Like, it's all because of this idea of compounding. So I like talking about it publicly. Anybody out there listening, like, keep an eye on the clock. Like, if you can do things a little bit earlier than you're scheduled to do, then go for it. More importantly, think about the opposite consequence by delaying, you know, your, your time because others are saying, wait, your turn or by opting for incrementalism, which I talk in the book a lot, when you have this bias towards incrementalism, presuming that you need to do A before B before C. You, if you don't challenge those rules and this sort of implicit bias we have towards incrementalism, you will have the opposite of compounding, right? You'll have lethargy, you know, and there'll be a lag in the system that'll affect your entire life. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to choose incrementalism or are you going to choose compounding? They're not mutually exclusive, but one is served by opting for step changes and one is impeded by opting for uh, incrementalism. That was uh, very abstract, but I think it made no, sense. no, no. It made the point, and 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 for people that aren't good at math, those two years when you're 16, they're worth one eighth of your life, which is 12 and a half percent of your life, right? So it doesn't sound right. like much, but 12 and a half percent of your life—that's a huge amount. If you're going to live 100 years, that's 12.5 years. Only two when you're 16 years old, though. Right. Well, that's why I love these little, I talk on the book about booster rockets because it's such a good way to see it, right? These little rockets are like you're slightly off course. If you stay off course over time as the rocket continues, right, you're ending up on Mars, you know, like, so, <laughs> you know, if you look at your life, it's kind of the same. If you can just, you know, little, little trajectory changing moments early, they, they, have a, they have more time over the course of your life to compound. So my career is the product of many things, but one important thing is, is um, compounding. Right. I mean, I went on Shark Tank when I was 41. I got a whole life to leverage that. You know what I mean? In all sorts of ways. Right. Good and good. I met Pope Francis 
when I was, what, what most people, you know, the presidents of countries never meet him, right? I've had two meetings with him in the last year and a half. I don't mean that from an ego standpoint, I'm saying that has now happened, right? Earlier. What will that do compounding over the course of my life? I love it, man. So I'm, I'm going to give our listeners what part, what I'd like to talk about in part two. And then we're, I want to, okay. I want to give some more information on the book and where they can get it. And then we're, we're going to do part two. Is that it? I love it. That's great. I'm All right. In. So we're going to be talking about, uh, sharing values, picking the right partners, you picking your wife and how big of, a, of an impact that made and how important that is. Harvard, becoming a fellow teaching your class at Harvard, all the case studies you brought there. Shark Tank, we, I mean, we barely even, like, barely touched the surface of the Shark Tank. Um, and then I want to talk about kid insurance. And so we got so much to talk about. And then I got some. one to add, one add to the list. Love all those. Um, how to identify what I call in the book proprietary insights how to mine the data, the stream of data that you live within, sit within, born into to identify a proprietary insight that either can become a business or a promotion, right? And I deconstruct in the book this idea of proprietary insights and how they've created some spectacular outcomes. And I love teaching people or at least opening their eyes to what is a proprietary insight language I basically made up uh, uh, or maybe somebody else did too, but <laughs> like I'm using it. I love it, man. So I added that to the list. We got a laundry list of amazingness to talk about. Man, Matt Higgins, I knew this would happen. You were such a stud and this was such a fun interview and I had such a good time and so much gratitude from my side to have you here to tell your story. And it's such an incredible story. Uh, the book, Burn the Boats, HarperCollins, it's out there. It's crushing. People need to go and read it if they want to change their life to the better. Even if you are an experienced entrepreneur, I'm a super experienced entrepreneur. I built a $200 million company. I was like loving your book like crazy. And I'm a person that's already done a ton of, a ton of cool things. So but that, if, honestly, that's a high endorsement because I was worried like, would this seem like master of the obvious? You know what I mean? Like, like it's hard to come up with. There's nothing new in the world. There's only new packaging, right? So yeah, I appreciate that you give such a strong endorsement because I truly bleed out on those pages. There's some parts of the book I just can't even read towards the end. I'm like, can't read that because I, I break down. So I tried to leave it all out there. So I appreciate that it resonates. I, I know that it you know and uh part two will go deeper i'm gonna say this like a lot of folks out there that are like all about just writing book after book after book would have turned your book into three books because there's so much content in there it's so i mean it's so much value i'm like but clearly you had a lot of stuff going on and this is your no, it's book. funny the publisher said the same thing like you know this could be a book and i was like eh. it's how i approached harvard i wanted to give a 5x return yep. and i thought somebody spends 30 bucks like it's real money. Let me at least give a, a something I felt like, oh, that's a pretty big return on that cash, right? So that's how I approached it. Plus, I might die. <laughs> so I, figured, you know, let me, I mean, it could happen, right? So let me let me get it all out there. I'm, I, if I die tomorrow, I'm content with this being the book I wrote. Yeah, yeah, thirty bucks, thousand uh, x return, maybe ten thousand x return. You'd have to be a moron to not read this book. So, uh, where can folks get the book? Where can they connect? Learn more about you and your so, amazingness. Uh, Amazon. It's on Audible. I, I tend to spend a lot of time on LinkedIn more than anywhere else, but Instagram as well. M Higgins. Uh, that's mostly a Twitter, but you know, Twitter will ruin your mind. So, <laughs> you know, I dabble, but you can find me those places. Cool. So we'll put that in the show notes and then we're going to schedule part two and we're going to dive deep on all those topics. My man, Matt Higgins, thank you so much for coming on the show. So much gratitude from here at the greatness machine. Uh, we're looking class. forward to the next episode, my friend. All right, everybody. Thank you. All right, guys, take care, share this and we'll talk later. Peace out. We love you.
you are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.